I'm truly excited about what God is doing here in our midst this weekend. We're beginning a new sermon series called Rhythm of Revivals. How many of you have ever been to a revival? Would you raise your hand? Hold it up high. And how many of you heard this at a revival? I can see that hand. <laughs> I can see that. All right, if you've been to a revival, you know that people uh, sometimes ask to make a response and, and uh, you can see their hands. I want you to know that uh, God uses revivals throughout history to change lives, no question. To not only change lives, but to change churches, to change communities, and to change the world. Now, my life has been impacted by revivals. When I was 14 years old, I was not a Christian, and I had become afraid of dying. I didn't know what would happen um, if I died in my sleep, and I would stay awake at night just fearful about what would happen. And my neighbor across the street, her name was Jean Edwards, she invited me to a revival at uh, Russell Baptist Church in Russell, Kentucky. And I didn't know what I was going to, I didn't know what I was getting into. But as Jack Edwards, the evangelist, preached, a young man who preached strongly the word of God, and he talked about how Jesus could come into your heart and, and give you peace and that you could know that if you died, where you were going. You could know whether you were going to heaven. And I wanted that. And on it, what it seemed like the 20th verse of Just As I Am, I went forward and gave my heart to Jesus. And my life has been forever changed by that little revival there in that Baptist church. God touched my heart. He, he changed my heart. And I believe that today, that God is wanting to touch somebody's heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you're afraid of dying. You're not sure where you're going to spend eternity. I'm here to tell you that we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he died on a cross so you can know that you can go to heaven. Now, about two years after that, when I was 16 years old, the evangelist named Bob Harrington came and did a crusade in Huntington, West Virginia. He was also known as the chaplain of Bourbon Street. He was quite a colorful character. And we took a busload of youth up to Huntington to listen to Reverend Bob Harrington. And as I was preparing this sermon, I remember back to a couple stories that he told. And I went online and I found an a, a audio uh, copy of Dr. Harrington, Reverend Harrington, telling these stories. He's from Alabama. Uh, he's since passed on and gone to the Lord, but this will give you a little bit of an idea of what I heard when I was 16 years old at a revival in Huntington, West Virginia. I was out in Texas not long ago. I talked to a man on Governor Conley's staff. As I was talking to him, I said, tell me about uh, Governor Conley. He was riding in the car with the president when he was assassinated in, Te in Dallas, Texas, not long ago. I said, what, what was the governor thinking about when the president was dead on the back seat and the governor there on the, with the bullet in his body? What was the governor really thinking about? He said, well, the governor was thinking about his president, thinking about his nation, thinking about his state, thinking about his family, thinking about his people. I said, come on now. What was the governor really thinking about? He said, well, every time a governor get down to that part, he'd break down and start crying. I said, sure he would. Because when you're the governor of Texas, a shoeshine boy in the French Quarter. When you got a bullet through your body and the death angel moving around your heart, you're not pledging allegiance. You're not checking the validity of the preamble of the Constitution. You're concerned about where you're going to spend an eternity. 
And I'll always say this again. If the Lord's good enough for you when you die, we ought to try him when we live it. He won't hurt you. I pulled in this shell station one time. And I pulled up to give me a little gas. See, I never get over a dollar's worth at a time. And that way you can preach and preach and preach and keep on preaching. And so this guy came back there to put some gas in my tank. And, and uh, he was leaning over there. He was thinking, man, I could see the filter on his tip. And he was leaning over there, uh, trying to think and fill my tank at the same time. And that old shell sign just a flicking. And I said, hey, man, what? I said, you saved? Am I what? <laughs> He's a real brilliant fellow. I said, are you saved? <laughs> yeah. I said, he said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And that old shell sign just a flicking them ashes about to drop. I said, man, if you're not saved, you take the ass off of that sign. That's where you're going if them ashes drop in that tank. <laughs> now, I'm not recommending that's how you do evangelism, but, uh, but, uh, but I've, that, that stories, those stories are etched in my, in my brain. And, I, and I'm, I'm probably sure that God used even that event to begin to plant a seed in my heart to be a pastor, to be a preacher. Now, I confess to you, I'm not an evangelist, but I thank God for evangelists. I thank God for the gift of evangelism, where people can go out and share with people the gospel and lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's our intent here during these weeks called Rhythms of Revival. Well, when I got here to the church, um, we talked about how this church could get going and, and a person that I admired since I became a believer was Dr. Billy Graham. And how many of you have heard or listened to a Dr. Billy Graham message? Yeah, what a powerful man of God that has touched more lives than any other person that walked the planet other than Jesus as far as preaching and going and, 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 and telling the stories of the gospel and leading people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So there was going to be a Billy Graham crusade in Charlotte my second year here at Mount Horeb, and I thought it'd be good that we took a group of people up to Charlotte to Erickson Stadium. So we got a, a busload of people, and they were mostly older people because that's all we had at that time. We went up to Charlotte, and I didn't check the itinerary or the schedule for the day, and it turned out it was youth night. And I got a bunch of older people with me. And Billy Graham, in his wisdom, in his uh, ability to reach people, he knew that if it was gonna be youth night in Charlotte, North Carolina, in 1995, you need to have a Christian rap band sing. And sure enough, DC Talk sang, and uh, it was loud, and my, and my people were a little bit concerned, these older people who were with me on this crusade. And never forget, in the rain, with umbrellas over our head, a little lady leaned forward to me and says, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jeff, when's Johnny Cash singing? And I said, I don't think Johnny's on the program tonight. But then I watched as uh, Dr. Graham walked out and the rain stopped, and Dr. Graham, knowing how to reach young people because he's an evangelist, started sharing the story of Madonna and how she wore a cross around her neck. But just because you wear a cross around your neck doesn't mean you know the Savior who died on the cross. And there in about 15 minutes, she shared the plan of salvation. And then I watched as thousands and thousands of young people went down out of those stands onto that field and gave their heart to Jesus Christ. Shortly after that, a couple years later, we wanted to have a revival here at Mount Horeb, and we were in the midst of growing dramatically, and, and we were making plans to build the sanctuary that's over there now. We wanted to have a revival, so we, we couldn't fit everybody in the little room up in the corner, so we rented a tent, and, 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 and Mount Horeb had a tent revival out there on the ball field, and uh, Reverend Dr. Pierce Norman from, from Georgia uh, came and preached. 
And many people gave their life to Jesus. You know, what I realized why God wanted me to take a bunch of old people, older people, seasoned saints uh, to Charlotte, because they saw there on that night how important it was to reach young people. And I believe that planted a seed in their, in their minds that, hey, we need to be a church that's providing ministry to youth, children, and young people. And then that Dr. Pierce Norman, as he preached that revival out on that ball field, it, it laid a foundation for what God is doing right now. You see, and I want God to do it again, amen? I want God to do it again and again and again, to bring revival, to bring renewal. What is revival? I'm gonna give you a definition uh, combined of several definitions and give you an idea. If you've never been to revival, true revival is when the living God powerfully breaks down into human history with the good news of salvation. When God shows up in new and fresh ways with a renewed sense of God's presence, power, holiness, and truth that spills out of the church and into the world. You see, revival is not just for us. It's to go out and change the world. It results in genuine conversions, transformed lives, healings, signs, and wonders leading to the transformation of communities, including a greater awareness of the needs of the poor and the hurting. See, revival is when God brings transformation that everyone thought was impossible. That person that there's no way that person's ever gonna change. And they come to a place where God transforms their life. A place where reconciliation happens where you never thought there could be any reconciliation. When there's a great revivals going on and you look at history and reading about revivals, that, that before people even walk in the door of a venue, they feel the presence of God. They begin to be convicted about things in their life and their heart even before the message begins. There is a spontaneous presence of the power of God's spirit. And I want God to do that again and again and again. So let me give you a design for revival. There's a, there's a role that God plays and there's a role that you and I play. And God's role, God alone, let me hear me say this, God alone is responsible for revival. God alone is responsible for salvation. I don't know what's gonna happen today. I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow or next week or next week, but I know that God wants to move. Do you, everybody agree with that? Say amen to that. God is wanting to move. He wants to move in your heart. He wants to move in, in, in this community. He wants to move into this state. He wants to move into the world. God has a plan. I love this verse uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 from the uh, Living Bible. For it is from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation he was the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. This is God's role. Only God can bring salvation. I don't save anybody. You don't save anybody. The church doesn't save anybody. Only God through Jesus Christ saves people, changes people, gives people new hearts. So I want to say that, that God has showed us a plan. Now, God shows us his plan in many ways. Certainly, God shows us his plan in, in, in creation, in nature. We see the fingerprints of God all over creation. We, you came here today, and, and, and you came here because God in, in, 
um, touched your consciousness. And, and, and there, there's, there's a consciousness that we have that the Bible says that God touches our very thoughts, that, that God is at work in our mind and our hearts. But, but in this passage, it clearly says that God showed us his plan through his son, that Jesus came to show us God's plan. That's why Jesus first, Jesus always is our number one core value at Mount Horeb. Jesus first, Jesus always, because Jesus is the source of God's plan. I love Hebrews chapter one, verse two. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son, through Jesus. God also reveals his plan in scripture. Now I, I share this very important passage uh, this morning in the other service. And, and I believe this is so central. And I'll get to this a little later in my message. But, but God shows his, his plan through scripture. And I love what 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. Not just the parts you like, but all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, as Methodist, people that go to a Methodist church, this Bible is how God has revealed his plan to us. John chapter one says, in, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. The word, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the, the word who was, was revealed and prophesied in the Old Testament became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the gospel writers wrote about Jesus in, in the gospels, the four gospels. And then Paul and other great writers wrote about Jesus throughout the New Testament. God is revealed in scripture. God is revealed in his son, Jesus, who is the savior. And then the part of God's role is that God made us then through all of this acceptable. God made us acceptable. If we will put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are made acceptable. The scripture says that we will be made pure and holy. That through what Jesus Christ did for us, we will be pure and holy. Now you may be here today and you don't feel very pure because of something that you did yesterday or, or a pattern in your life, a, 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 um, a habit in your life, an obsession in your life, a direction in your life. But I'm here to tell you that we have a God who can make you pure again. That Jesus Christ came to make you acceptable to God. You can't do that on your own. You'll be swimming uphill the whole time. You'll be swimming in the, in, against the current. The Bible says that you can't change yourself, but God can make you clean on the inside. He made us holy. He made us pure. And, uh, and how did that happen? God gave himself to purchase our salvation that, that it was through Jesus purchasing our salvation. I love what Galatians 1.4 says. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as, our, as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live, to rescue us. This morning, God has a plan that's been revealed through his son. It's been revealed in scripture that God wants to make you acceptable to him, that God wants to, to, to bridge the gap of sin in your life to a holy God. And he did that through Jesus who purchased our salvation. Colossians 1, um, 
13, 14, the Bible says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transformed us, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased, purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This morning, every sin you've ever committed has been purchased. When Jesus Christ purchased your sins on the cross, every sin, that means that every sin you've committed can be forgiven, can be forgiven. Both past, present, and future. Now that's God's role. God's role is to provide for you and I the plan of salvation as revealed in scripture through his son, Jesus Christ. But we have a role to play. We have a role to play. While God is alone responsible for salvation, you and I are alone responsible for our response to God's offer. We've got to do something with what God has offered us. That God has offered to us the plan of salvation. And we've got to make a choice whether or not we will receive that or not. I love what John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, well, I say I love it. It's a powerful prophetic statement that we see living out among a people called Methodists. It's a prophetic statement he made about our role. He said, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I'm afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. My friends, you and I have a choice to make, even as Methodists, even at Mount Horeb, that we can be a religious sect that is dead in power, just meeting to meet, meeting to try to do some good, or we can be a place that's filled with the power of God, where God can move in mighty ways if we hold fast to doctrine, what is found in Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and the discipline with which they first set out. I want to be a church where there are rhythms of revival because we are living into God's purpose and God's way. So what are the rhythms of revival? I want to give you several this morning. The first is this, the very first thing that you and I have got to do in order to experience revival in our lives and in our church and our community is a resolve to pray. A resolve to pray. I'm so thankful that one of our core values at Mount Horeb is to be prayer driven. Prayer driven means to have a resolve to pray. To not just pray for ourselves, but to pray for God to move in our church, to pray for God to move in our community, to pray for God to move in the culture, to pray for God to move in the world. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, a familiar passage. Then if my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. See, we have a God who wants to restore this land. But we as God's people must resolve to pray. We must commit ourselves to pray, to humble ourselves in God's presence. Jim Cimbala, who led a great revival in the city of New York, said this, I've discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperate they need him. God responds when we get desperate. When we go to our knees and say, God, I need you in my life. 
God, I need you to change this situation. God, I need you to touch my family. God, I need you to change my heart. When was the last time you were desperate in prayer? When you, when you stayed up all night praying, when you were seeking God's power and God's presence through prayer, desperate seeking him. I um, came across a, a tweet. Now, let me just confess that, that I, that I kind of, I have a Twitter account. I'm not very active in it. I don't know which buttons to push. I'm always afraid I'm going to like something I shouldn't like and, uh, and, and not like something I should like. And so I just kind of really stay away from it. But, uh, but I check it every now and then. It, you know, these things come through and I'll, I'll read them and see what people are saying. And I, got a, I saw a tweet from Beth Moore, a great uh, woman, pastor, preacher, teacher. Many of you have read her books. Women have read her books. She said this on her tweet. We need a bona fide. I like the word bona fide. Say bona fide. I like that word, bonafide. We need a bonafide, otherwise unexplainable move of the Spirit desperately among us and in our churches, but it waits on the other side of our rediscovery of what saints of previous generations called tarrying before the Lord. What is tarrying before the Lord? It's a resolve to pray. I'm gonna commit myself to praying for God to move in a mighty way. And she says, I just don't think God's much into instant messaging. Yeah, we were really good. I, I confess to you, I'm really good at shotgun prayers. I can pray as I'm going, just pray, you know, and I think it's a good thing, but, but there needs to be a time when we tarry in prayer, when we, when we have a resolve to pray for God to move in our lives. We, we, we want God, we want to complain about what's going on in the world. We want to complain about what our leaders are doing. We want to com complain about the divide in our country. But when have we had a resolve to pray? When we got down on our knees and prayed for God to move in a mighty way in our country, in our culture, resolved to pray. The second rhythm that's got to happen, I believe that this is where prayer comes in and leads to repentance. There's got to be a time of repentance. And repentance begins with conviction. That uncomfortable place where God begins to convince you that maybe what you thought was right really isn't right. What you thought was good for you really wasn't good for you. What you thought was fun really wasn't much fun. What you thought wouldn't hurt you really is destroying your life. It's conviction. And with conviction comes com confession. Confessing our sins to God. And even sometimes going and confessing our sin to a brother or a sister that we trust. Confessing our sins to someone else who will pray for us and help us find forgiveness. And, and, and that leads to repentance. Repentance is when we turn away from our sins. It's not when we say to God, God, I'm sorry I did it again. God, I'm sorry I did it again. That's not repentance. Revival comes when we turn away from our sins and move toward God. Now, I believe we need revival more than ever in our world. Can I get a second to that? I believe there needs to be a great awakening, a great spiritual awakening. We're not gonna solve our problems through politics. We're not gonna solve our problems through social workers. We're gonna solve our problems through a great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit of healing and, and, and discovery of grace and mercy. We need repentance. We need a resolve to pray. You know, and, and, and you think about that Second Chronicles seven fourteen passage where if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and restore their land. You see, in the Eastern mindset, when the people of God would get down and pray, they weren't just praying for themselves. They were praying for their land. They were praying for their neighborhood. They were praying for their country. They were praying for the world. 
If we're going to have true revival, we've got to confess the sins of our nation. We've got to confess the sins of our leaders. We've got to confess the sins and say, God, hear our confession. We, we want to turn from this and turn back to you. It requires a corporate confession, not just a personal confession. Church historian Brian Edwards says, we often view revivals as a time of glory and joy. But before there is glory and joy, there's conviction. Their wrongs are put right. Their secret things are revealed. Bad relationships are repaired. Things that have been hidden are brought into the open. Confession, conviction. If we're not prepared for this, we will never receive revival. There are times that there are things that God wants to do in our lives that God won't do because we're hiding from God. We're, we're trying to present a front to everyone that everything's okay. We're trying to say, I can do whatever I want to do and I'm really happy inside and inside you're, 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 you're being destroyed on the inside with guilt, with fear. You're wondering about your salvation. You're wondering about your eternity. You're wondering what's gonna happen to me. And God wants to give you deliverance from that. God wants to bring you peace. God wants to bring you healing. God wants to bring you wholeness in your life, real wholeness. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. He will forgive us and make us right with him. So I believe there's got to be a resolve to pray. There's got to be a repentance. And there's got to be this very important point. There's got to be a recovery of biblical truth a recovery of biblical truth. Now, getting ready for this sermon series, I began to listen to old sermons of, of great evangelists. I've listened to Dr. Um, or Reverend Bob Harrington. I've listened to Dr. Billy Graham. The other night, Lynn and I were listening to a Billy Graham sermon. And we noticed that Billy Graham kept saying this same phrase over and over again. And so we stopped it and started again. I said, Lynn, make a note of how many times he says this phrase. And he said this same phrase 47 times in a 33-minute sermon. You know what the phrase was? The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. Or the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches. He didn't talk about what he was teaching. He didn't talk about what he was saying. He was saying, this is what the Bible says. 47 times in a 32-minute sermon. Now, if you know the story of Billy Graham, you know that wasn't always the case. He writes, in 1949, I had a great many doubts concerning the Bible. And there are people right here in the audience today that have doubts about the Bible. He said, I thought I saw apparent contradictions in Scripture. And because I had these doubts and what I thought were contradictions in Scripture, when I stood up to preach, I had no authority. I could not preach with authority because I had these doubts. And like hundreds of other young seminary students, I was waging an intellectual battle in my mind and the outcome would have an effect on the future of my ministry. And let me tell you today, in our seminaries, there is a great battle going on about the authority of God's word, about the doubts people have about Holy Scripture. I can tell you with great sadness that we have seminaries that are Methodist seminaries that don't believe and believe in the resurrection. They doubt the resurrection and they, and they question those kind of things. And, and we wonder why the Methodist movement is, is, is declining at a rapid pace. Because we no longer teach in, in our seminaries, the Bible says, or the Bible teaches. 
we have theologians who think they know more than what the Bible teaches. And that's a whole other sermon. Let me get back on this here. Graham and another evangelist named Charles Templeton, who was considered the better preacher, the one with the brightest future, enrolled at Princeton Theological Seminary, a seminary that had become very liberal. And this is what Templeton told Billy Graham at the time, that no one takes the Bible seriously anymore. No one takes it seriously anymore, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Let me tell you, in the last couple of years, I've had several people tell me, Pastor Jeff, you know you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. That Bible is not quite as clear as, as you think it is. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Well, Billy Graham talked about that struggle he had. He went out to a retreat in the mountains of L.A., and he said, I wrestled with the authority of Scripture in my life. And in desperation, I surrendered my will to the living God. I knelt before an open Bible and said, Lord, there are many things in this book I do not understand. But the Bible says you shall live by faith. And here and now, by faith, I accept the Bible as thy word. I take it all without any reservations. Within six weeks... The Los Angeles crusade began. And Billy Graham says, during that crusade, I discovered the secret that changed my ministry. Over and over again, I found myself saying three words. The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible teaches. And that authority created faith. And that faith generated response. And hundreds of people were led to Jesus. A crusade that was scheduled to last three weeks went eight weeks with hundreds of thousands of people in attendance. I love what Dr. Graham said. He says, people were not coming to hear some great orator. They weren't interested in my ideas. I found they were hungry to hear what God had to say in his holy word. My friends, I want to be a church that talks about the Bible and speaks what God has to say in his holy word. If you know the story of Charles Templeton, that promising young evangelist, they went to Princeton Theological Seminary. He became an agnostic. He went on to have a broken life with several broken marriages. His life in shambles because he chose to be on the right side of history. I want to say I want to be on the right side of Scripture and believe what God says clearly in his word. You know, the results of Dr. Graham's preaching speak for themselves. He preached to over 210 million people. It's reported that 3.2 million people gave their life to Jesus through his preaching. In the summer of 1957, Graham preached 16 consecutive weeks at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Can you imagine that happening today? That Dr. Graham or an evangelist would preach for 16 straight weeks to sell out crowds every night in Madison Square Garden in New York City or in the Colonial Life Center or in some of the largest uh, coliseums or venues in our country that people would line up in the street to come hear what the Bible says? Do we need an awakening? Do we need a, a great movement of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But we've got to have a resolve to pray. We've got to be willing to repent and we've got to take seriously Holy Scripture. On the way to church this morning, I was praying. I, I didn't sleep much last night. I wrestled with this sermon, it's, this whole series. I'm writing to church this morning, early this morning, and Lauren Daigle was singing, You Say.
is sweeping the country. It's the most popular song out there. It's crossed all the venues. When I watch something on TV, there's Lauren Daigle singing in the background, you say. And what does she sing the song about? She says, you say I'm love when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm hell when I'm falling short and I believe. What you say to me, I believe. How does revival start? When we believe what God says to us. And God has clearly stated what he wants to do in our midst. You know, I believe that whenever we have a resolve to pray, when we repent, turn from our sins, when we take scripture seriously, we'll experience the reality of God's power. Only then. The reality of God's presence. I felt God's presence here this morning when I was driving to the church as I listened to Lauren Daigle sing, You Say. Not what anyone else says, but God, what you say. Because I hear a lot of voices in my head, don't you? A lot of people telling me what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe. I get asked to make statements about what I believe and what I don't believe. But I'm going to say, I believe what the Bible says. Amen? Amen. I don't believe what Mount Hor believes. I don't believe what the, that's not my basis. My basis is not what the Methodists believe. My basis is what the Bible believes and what the Bible says. Today, we will then experience the reality of God's power and presence. Revival is his arrival. It's when God shows up in powerful, powerful ways. I'm gonna ask you to, to, if you get a chance, you can read this book. I don't have time to get into it. I've been reading a book uh, by a chaplain named Lieutenant Kerry H. Cash. It's, it's a, the book's called A Table in His Presence. It's about, a, it's about a battalion of soldiers on their way into Baghdad during the Iraq War. And how this chaplain um, did these, th- those things. He, he, he uh, was resolved to pray with him. He prayed with him constantly. When the battalion would stop in the desert, he would go from Jeep or Humvee to Humvee to, to the armored personnel carriers, and he would get in there and pray with each of the soldiers. He had a portable altar he would take out into the desert, and he would serve communion. They would have baptisms with their canteens out in the desert, and, and men, soldiers, were giving their life to Jesus. It was a profound thing to see what happened. And when they went into Baghdad, when they came under assault, they came into the ambush. You need to read about what, what God did. A young soldier had told the chaplain, I've got to see before I can believe. When he got into the palace where they had went through an ambush, went through the, the most horrific fighting in all of the war, the young soldier said, I believe because I saw. I saw RPGs coming directly at the Jeep suddenly make a left-hand turn. I saw an RPG that went under the Jeep and should have exploded and killed us all. It skipped and went over and, and, and hit the curb. I saw a soldier that got hit in the head and the Kelvar helmet, you know, right in the head and, and he fell back off his gun. I knew he was dead. And he stood back up and when he got into the palace, there a bullet had entered this side of his helmet, went through the skin of the helmet and was sticking out the other side. Made a complete circle over his head. You see, he, it was a chaplain who took seriously a resolve to pray, took seriously to call his men to repentance took seriously the scriptures of God. They carried New Testaments with them wherever they went. They carried those pocket Bibles with them in their Humvees, in their armored personnel carriers because they believed that God had the power and they saw the presence of God. Now, in our text this morning, God showed his plan. God showed us how we can become acceptable. God told us that Jesus came to purchase our salvation. And the reason is why? This is because you and I have a heart problem. You and I are all sinners. 
The sermon that I listened to Dr. Graham preach this week was a sermon entitled Heart Disease. He wasn't talking about physical heart disease. He was talking about spiritual heart disease. And in 1957, in Madison Square Garden, Billy Graham said the greatest problem in this country is heart disease, that our hearts are not right with God. I don't think that truth has changed since 1957. In fact, I think it's getting worse and worse that our hearts are not right with God. When God looks at us, my friends, today, he doesn't look at your outside. He looks at the inside. All we can see, all I can see is all these beautiful faces dressed in all these wonderful clothes, but God looks directly into your heart. He knows your thoughts right now. He knows your intent. He knows your motives. You know, when our heart gets out of rhythm, it affects our ability to function. And if it's not treated, it will be fatal. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if your heart is out of rhythm with God, if your heart is not right with God, your whole life will be out of rhythm. Whenever I go to my annual physical, the first thing they do when I walk in the room is they give me an EKG. They want to make sure my heart is right. My heart is working. Today, what God wants to know from you is simply, is your heart right? Is your heart right with God? Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. Everyone in this room is going to die. Everyone in this room, your physical heart is going to give out. And before we meet God, our hearts need to be right with God. The Bible says, the Bible says that God can change your heart. In fact, the Bible says in Ezekiel, if you'll put that passage up there from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you'll be no longer worship idols. And I will give you what? A new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. And I'll put my spirit in you so that you can follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. I believe there are people here today that God wants to give a new heart. So we're going to sing a closing song called I Surrender All. Today, wherever you are, I'm going to invite people to get up all over this room and, and come down front here to pray. And if you want to give God your heart today, maybe you feel your heart is full of guilt your heart is full of fear like I was when I was 14. God can give you a new heart. How's your heart today? I want to invite people who, whose hearts are right with God to come and pray. To pray for a great awakening. To pray for a movement of those people. This morning, earlier we had this whole room was full of people praying on their knees. If you need someone to pray with you this morning about a new heart, just lift your hand. We've got people up here that'll be stationed to pray with you. Let me pray with you right now. And I'm going to ask you as we pray. I know the hour is getting a little bit late. I know you got dinner plans. But I'm going to ask you not to leave. I'm going to ask you to stay here for just a few moments. Because if you get up and move, you may keep God from moving in somebody's heart. Father God, I pray right now that you would create in me a clean heart. Father God, that you would repair someone's broken heart today. That someone invites you into their heart that have never invited you in their heart. And Lord, Lord, your word tells us that if we will confess our sins, 
if we will believe that Jesus Christ is your son, that we can be saved, we can be changed, we can become a new person with a new beginning. And I pray, Father God, that a renewal, a revival, an awakening will start here in this place and will not stay here, but will spill out into the community and beyond. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.